Masechet Shekalim, page 16, we have some uh, fantastic agadot, some of them very famous, very important agadot. Um, we're speaking about the Aron, the Ark of the Covenant, which we mentioned yesterday uh, is was missing for the entire second Bet HaMikdash. Uh, it was, this was related to the Mishnah because the Mishnah said that there are different places that they bowed and one of them was under the chamber of wood, the wood storage room, because there was a tradition that the Aron was buried underneath there. Uh, so while we're on that topic, we're going to talk more about other items that were hidden and then give more specifics about the Aron HaKodesh and the Luchot berit and uh, related discussion. So we begin with the following Baraita. At the same time that the Aron was hidden away, also there was a canister of man that Moshe placed for, for future generations that they should remember. This is what the man was, um, even though the man didn't last from one day to another, but this jar would last. Uh, we don't have it anymore. It was hidden along with the Aron. Also, the flask of anointing oil, uh, when the Moshe and would anoint Aaron and the Kohanim, and then the future generations, they anointed Kohanim, and then kings also, they were all anointed with the special perfumed oil that we're going to discuss in detail. But that was also hidden away. The staff of Aharon that in the contest with Kodach uh, and his people, the, this is the Aharon that blossomed with berries, that was kept for a long time, but was hidden away along with the Aharon. And also when the Ark went out, the Ark of the Covenant went out to war during the time of Ali, and it was captured by Pilishtim, and then it caused, gave them all kinds of diseases and bad luck. And so they returned it with a gift of uh, in a box with different idols in it. And so that was kept uh, a lot, that was kept for all this time and also was hidden away when the Adon was hidden away. Okay, now Miganazah, Yoshiahu Genazah, who hid all these things away? It was Yoshiahu, one of the one of the last kings uh, of uh, Judea. This is the famous story when he wanted to uh, uh, repair the Bet HaMikdash and he found a Sefer Torah uh, in the treasury and they read it and uh, the part that he read was the Klalot at the end of Devarim and it said um, in there among the other Klalot that God is going to take you and your kingdom in your king to a nation you have not known, you or your father. In other words, you're going to be exiled. So uh, exiled. So even though Yoshiah was a good king and he tried his best to repair, but the kings before him were so bad that uh, destruct destruction was uh, pretty much inevitable. And so, because he saw that he did not want the ark to go into fall into enemy hands, so Ahmad Ugnazo. So therefore, he hid it. Hadahu which is describing the holiday of Pesach that Yoshiah made. And uh, there he said, tells the Levim, the, the ones who uh, taught all of Israel, the, you know, the high, the, the high level uh, Levim that he could trust. 
and uh, the, he said, take the add-on and put it in the house that Shalomo built. Now, what does this mean? That wasn't the add-on already in the house that Shalomo built? So what is he talking about? So it says this is a reference to his instruction to hide it. And therefore, and once you hide it, you won't have to burden it on your shoulders. Not going to carry it anywhere. Hide it there in place. And then uh, they'll, these Levim will be free to do other, uh, other important jobs. I know that if, it is, if the ark goes into exile with the Jews, it will never return. Even though the remnant of the Jews will return, the ark is going to get lost. So therefore we have to bury it here now. Uh, so they did that and then they could go and serve its people in other important tasks. Okay, so now we know uh, exactly uh, who hid, hid, hid it. So that, now we're going to go back to that Braita. We mentioned the oil, the anointing oil. Petum shemen ha-mishcha v'atakach lecha v'chule. So a pasuk in Shemot that describes exactly how you take this, uh, this the, how you prepare this, anoint, this anointing oil. And it says you should take uh, these different spices, 500 shekels of myrrh. Shekel is a, is a weight measurement. Uh, and sweet cinnamon, ha- half of that, 250. Uh, sweet cal- calamus, 250. And cas- cassia, also 500. So you take all this. Shehen, elif achamesh me'ot manim. Right, 500, 250, 250, and 500. Altogether is 1,500 um, weights. Uh, it ends up being about 50 pounds of spices that we were taking. And you take a heen of oil, uh, that's about one or two gallons of oil, uh, which is uh, altogether, that's equivalent to 12 log. And you would boil the spices in the oil, and then the aroma of the spices would would um, would be absorbed into the oil. And then that's how you'd use it. That's the first opinion of the bimeir. The second opinion, however, how it was prepared, not in, not in oil, but first in water. First, you cook the spices uh, in water, and then the, the water, that, that, that boiling extracts the oils in, in, that are in the uh, roots, and I guess the oil rises to the top. And then you can take that oil and mix it with that, that, that fragrant oil and mix it with the one or two gallons of oil. And that's the better way to do it. And once the, the, the fragrance went into the oil, then you can uh, remove it. Uh, and this is, takes a special uh, a technique in order to know how to do this, like the professional perfumers do. Uh, the main part of the point of the pasuk is at the end. You should make this a shemet the way of the perfumers. And so you should uh, learn this technique, and this is how you should prepare the anointing oil. Okay, very good. Now, um, we just mentioned that there's about 50 pounds of, uh, of spices that you would boil in, uh, in uh, according to the first opinion, in about one or two gallons of oil. Doesn't seem that it could actually fit. So that's what we're going to deal with now. So Rabbi Uda says that this process of the uh, of making the anointing oil must have been a miracle, must have been a miracle from beginning to end, because the ratio just doesn't seem right. 
to begin with, is only 12 log, one or two gallons. Shema shemen zayitin, same as one hin. Im lasuch If you're going to actually cook the those those spices in the oil, then it's certainly not enough. All the more so because the fire, once you actually cook them, then it reduces the amount. Uh, I guess, you know, some, some gets... Uh, uh, gets evaporated, and the wood absorbs, and the pot itself absorbs some of it. And from whatever oil is left after all that, you have to use, they would have to use that to anoint not only the people, but also the whole Mishkan, all of its vessels, vessels, the, the, the table, the menorah, all of the, its accompanying vessels, Aharon, the Kohen Gadol, his children, for all seven days. And in the future, you're going to have to use the same oil to anoint high priests and kings. So that's uh, that, uh, two, uh, two gallons to, has to go a long way. You need you know, more than a Hanukkah miracle to make this oil last for centuries and centuries for all this use. So therefore, he says, this was a great miracle that even though there was uh, so little oil to begin with, yes, it did last. Now, who actually requires to get, uh, is, is required to be anointed? In the future, every Kohen Gadol would be anointed. Actually, it doesn't say in Torah that kings would be anointed. In fact, there's a prohibition for anyone to use the anointing oil for any other reason. So there's a bit of a chidush that kings would get anointed. And here the Baraita says, actually, in uh, 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 standard cases, a king would not need to be anointed by oil if he was the king, the son of a king. Now, if you just follow the dynasty, then, uh, then that's fine. So the beginning of a dynasty, you can anoint the first king, but then it goes automatically. Uh, the rest of them don't. My tama. Because it says, when Shaul went to uh, anoint David, right? He went down the line, all the brothers, and he says, okay, well, there's no, no more, nobody left. And they find David is hiding out there, the, the, the youngest son. And uh, Shem says, yes, that's the one. Anoint this one. So the rabbi has learned from this that the only he only David is anointed. But his son and those after him will not require anointing because then once the dynasty is started, the rest of the people do not require anointing. But Kohen Gadol, the son and his son, even 10 generations, each one is required to, um, to get anointed. So really the anointing is for Kohen Gadol. The king is almost like a side point, only in special circumstances. And all of the those couple of gallons of oil that they had, that was is going to last even into the future. And that's why the Pasuk says, this will be for generations. So this means the same amount. Okay, now, where should you do the anointing of a king? It should be next to a spring. This is a good, Im- a good imagery, just like the spring is flowing, so too the, uh, the dynasty should flow and continue and be prosperous. So that's a good symbol to, uh, to, to use. Uh, good setting. And we learn this from Shalomo, King Shalomo, 
David said, take my, my uh, own royal mule and take him down to the Gihon River and anoint him there along with these other officers. Um, the Gihon River is what supplied Yerushalayim with, uh, with water uh, through Chizkiyaz Tunnel, which I'm sure many of us have walked through. Okay, good. So it's, uh, it should be done by a spring. Now, when do we anoint a king? Only if there is some dispute regarding the, his kingship. So if it's just a standard case, the king dies, the son takes over, no need to do anointing. So here's, the, here's some examples of places where there was a controversy. So Shalomo, the second king right after David, was he was anointed because actually Shalomo was not the oldest. Adoniyahu was older, and so Adoniyahu actually tried to become king, and it was only through a lot of maneuvering that Shalomo was able to get become king. So he has Shalomo was anointed because of the machloket. Machloket here could mean the controversy. Actually, probably they translate the translate dispute, but more likely it means the faction of Adoniyah. Right, his faction that uh, tried to make Adoniah king, so therefore Shalomo needed it. Yoash mipne Ataliyahu. Ataliyahu was the one queen that we had in Israel. She was very evil. She tried to kill off all of the, the all of the family of the kings, and uh, and uh, one baby was saved and hidden, um, and then had to be was brought back. So because that was not a, a, a direct takeover, but only after a lot of problems, that's Yoash. So Yoash was therefore anointed. Uh, so Yoachaz was, uh, was uh, appointed to be the king, um, even though he was younger than Yehoiakim by two years. Uh, so therefore he got anointed. And Yehu mipne Yoram. And Yehu because... Uh, Yoram uh, was the son of, Aho, uh, of Ahav, and he should have been the king, even though he was the son, but Yehu took over the son of Yehoshaphat. He was a king from the south that became king of the north. And so that, because that was a takeover, not the usual dynastic succession, all those are examples of kings who did get anointed. And we repeat the rule that we had before that only uh, this, only David requires uh, to be anointed and, and he's from the south. So only, only southern kings would get anointed, not northern kings. So this is a question on the last example we just brought because of Yehu, he became the king of Israel of the northern kingdom. So he shouldn't have required anointing, even though he, he was not the uh, successor in a dynasty, just shouldn't get it at all. So maybe that's why he didn't get it, not because he was, uh, he was a usurper, but because he was from the north. So it really doesn't make sense what, that he was listed here. Um, so we're going to answer this question with another question. Hold on, Yoshiahu and Yoyakim lived after Yoshiahu, their father, right? These are the, these are the sons of Yoshiahu. And we just said that Yoshiahu is the one that hid away the oil, the, the anointing oil. So if Yoshiahu hid it away, then Yoyachaz and Yoyakim, neither of them could have gotten anointed. So what are you talking about? Uh, that the Yoachaz was anointed. Rather, it must be that this they were actually anointed by some balsam oil, not the official anointing oil. So they were anointed with some oil, but not the official one. And so therefore, uh, they, we can use that to answer the first question that Yehu, he became king of the north. 
kings of the northern kingdom don't get officially anointed, uh, so we could give the same answer. It wasn't with official anointing oil, but rather with just with some balsam oil as a symbolic gesture. Okay, good. And Moshkin Melachim Elamin Hakeden, the special horn that's used to um, to uh, to pour the oil on the king. And these two kings, Shaul and Yehu, uh, were not, they did not use the horn for them, but rather just a small earthenware cruise, right? much uh, cheaper and some breakable. And because of that, their monarchy was temporary, didn't last long. However, David and but those who used, uh, used the horn, which is David and Shalomo, their, their uh, monarchy lasted for a long time. And in fact, if you look at the Pesukim for each of these four kings, it's true, the first two says Pach, and the second two says Keren. And Moshchin Kohanim Melachim. One should not make a Kohen into a king, right? There's a rule, there's a separation of powers. Kohanim are Kohanim, and kings are kings. A Kohen should not be anointed. Not only not be anointed, he shouldn't become king at all. This is a very interesting statement because we did have a time period where we had Kohanim who were kings, and that's the Chashmonaim, right? They were a family of Kohanim, and they became Kohen Gadol, and after a couple of generations, they made themselves kings too, which was extremely controversial. Very Many people were upset. Uh, by that, so this line might be uh, might be a, a, a reference to the Chashmonaim themselves. Ramban even says that the Chashmonaim died out early; that they, their, their dynasty did not last because they took on the name king. Amar Rabbi Yehuda Anton de Raya, interesting name. Al Shem Lo Yasur Shebet Mi Israel. How do we know that? Because it says regarding Yehuda that the scepter, meaning the scepter of kingship, should not depart from Yehuda, and therefore the, always, the king should always be from the tribe of Yehuda and not Kohanim, who are from the tribe of Levi. Another source uh, is in the laws of the kings in Devarim Yudzayin. It ends up saying, so he should follow all these laws uh, so that he will have be, live long on his, in his dynasty, he, him, he and his children within the midst of Israel. And what's the next pasuk? The next pasuk is the next paragraph talking about the next part of the government, the leadership, don't get inheritance within Israel. But if you read that as, as a continuation of the previous paragraph, so the kings should live long and not the Kohanim Elvim. Kohanim Elvim should not be kings. That's the second way to derive it. Um, okay, first one's more explicit, second one a little bit less so. Amar Yochanan, who Yochanan, who Yehoachaz. Rabbi Yochanan tells us a teaching about the name Yochanan, so I guess that's appropriate. Um, in Divrei Amim, it lists the sons of Yoshiyahu, right, the, the king Yoshiyahu we just mentioned. And there it says his firstborn was Yochanan, and then Yehoiakim, then Sidkiah, and then Shalom. So uh, he tells us that Yochanan is Yehoachaz. Because here in Melachim, we know that Yoachaz became the king. Uh, and so who's Yochanan? So this is the same person. Hold on. But it says that he was the Bechor. And we just mentioned that he was not the Bechor. He was younger. So it means Bechor le Malchut. He was the first to become king. Even though he was two years younger than his brother Yehoiakim, he nevertheless became king first. And that's why I list him as the Bechor. 
in Devarim. Amar Rabbi Yochanan, who Shalom, who Sidkiyah. Now the last two kids, the third says the third is Sidkiyah, the last is Shalom. So Rabbi Yochanan also says that Shalom and Sidkiyah are the same person, even though they're listed as two different children, they really refer to the same person. Okay, this is interesting. Midrash very often takes many names to be symbolic names, as here. Um, question, hold on, it says third kid was Sidkiah, fourth kid was Shalom. That sounds like they're different people. No, answer, No, he was third to be born, but he was the fourth to, uh, to achieve uh, kingship. Uh, because first he had his older brothers, Yehoiachaz and Yehoiakim, and then his nephew, Yehoiachin. And after Galut Yehoiachin, Yehoiachin was uh, king only for a short time, three months. Then it went back to the Yehoiachin's uncle, who was Sidkiah, who was the very, very last king of Yehuda. So therefore he's called third and also fourth, because fourth to be the king. Uh, of the sons uh, of the sons of Yoshiahu. why was he called Sidkiyahu? Because he accepted the uh, the uh, judgment upon himself. Uh, he had a terrible punishment that the king Nebuchadnezzar captured him and slaughtered his sons in front of him and then gouged out Sidkiyah's eyes. So the last thing he ever saw was his uh, were, were his children being killed. Um, nevertheless, he accepted the judgment that says God God is a righteous judge. Judge, you said Baruch Dayan Emet. So therefore, his name is Sidkia. Shalom. Why was named Shalom? Shalom, meaning from complete. Uh, during his day, the uh, the dynasty of David became came to an end, was completed. Unfortunately. Now, neither of those were his real name. His real name was Matanya, meaning present of God. As the Pasuk says, that the king of Babel, meaning the Bukhadnezar, uh, placed Matanya, the uncle of Yehoiachin, to be on the on the throne, and he changed his name to Sidkiyah. I think changing a name was a way of uh, of a uh, a more powerful king exerting control over uh, the his his uh, subservient vassal king. Okay, now since we were talking about the Aron, we went on a tangent to talk about other things that were also. Uh, hidden away with the Aron, but now we're going to get back to our subject and talk about the Aron itself. What were the dimensions of the Aron? So um, it was made, made it was uh, the, um, uh, the so the dimensions of the Aron, Torah tells us. However, there's a question, which type of Ama are we using? So Rabbi Hanan says Ama of six uh, Tefachim each. An Ama is uh, an arm length, um, but there's a Machloket about how, how long an arm length is, is in terms of fists. So one opinion says six, there are six fists to an arm length, and that's the measurement that we should use uh, in order to measure how big the Aron was. And this follows, follows the Tanad Bimeir, who says that all the all the all the sizes mentioned in the Torah, we're assuming there are six amot to uh, six tefachim um, uh, uh, to an amma. However, the Biudah Omer, amot habinyan shisha shel kelim chamisha. The Biudah says, when we're talking about the measurements for the building, then there were, oh, for, for there, there he agrees there were six tefachim to an amma. But for the vessels in the Bet Mekdash, we use the shorter one that has only five tefachim to an amma. 
Okay, so this is uh, confusing, uh, but very interesting. It may have to do with something we saw earlier on uh, Pesachim, that uh, they had different kinds of measurements when they were uh, buying and selling, when making uh, negotiating contracts uh, with, uh, with contractors so that they would uh, make sure that the contract was actually delivering more than he was being paid for, just to ensure that the contract wasn't stealing from the Vet Mikdash. Okay, in any case, we had these two types of measurements, and the question is, when we talk about the Aron, which one was it? So we're going to analyze every, each one. Okay, now the Aron was what two and a half amot wide by two and a half by two and a half by um, one and a half. So if we translate that into tefachim, what, what, what do we get? Well, each tef, each ama is six tefachim. So if we have two and a half, that would be six plus six plus a half is another three, right? So ameta ashita, one ama is six, ameta ashita, another ama is six, ufalgut ameta telata, and that, and a half of an ama is three, the six and six is 12, another three is 15. So it was 15 in, uh, in one direction. So basically it's 15 by 15 tall, 15 long, and it'll be the same uh, tall. Um, and the, uh, the thickness we'll get to in a minute. So, now, what did, you, what, what did we place in the Aron? Well, you had four sets of Luchot, um, because you had the full ones and the broken ones. And for each, each set had two. So that's two times two is four altogether. What do you do with them? You put them in the Aron. Remember yesterday we had a machloket where there are two separate Arons, one for the broken ones, one for the full ones, or were they all in the same Aron? So here we're following Rabbanan who say that all four were in the same Aron. Now, how did they fit? So making assumptions, not explicit, but we're assuming that the luchot themselves were six tefachim uh, by six tefachim. Uh, so the standard opinion is they were six by six by three. Uh, so now we're putting them in uh, sideways. And so what do you get? Uh, leftover. We have a nice diagram here. Uh, so this is assuming Rabbi uh, Meir, who says one ama is six tefach. Uh, if so, you have two and a half amot uh, is is the um, is the length, and the one and a half ama is the width. Uh, for, we're not going to talk about the depth right now. And so that comes out to 15 tefach altogether. Now you need four of these that we're putting in uh, sideways. So that's and then uh, that takes up six uh, of the width. So what do you have left over? Well, the whole thing, no, sorry, you have here, oh, we're gonna do this way first, right? We have uh, three, 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 and three, that's 12. So 12 out of 15, that leaves three left. And so what do we do with the rest of the three? Well, you need some space for the walls because when we say 15 tefach, that's from the outer wall to the outer wall. And so you have to account for part of it that's in between. Um, so that's what we, the next line is. So we have three left over. How thick were the walls? Well, let's say half a tefach for each of the walls. 
So then, so there's two left over, two tevachim left over, right? You see here. So uh, this is for the inside walls is 14. This makes up 12. So there's two left over. And that means that there was two tevachim more. You have to push these all to one side. And so the Sefer Torah that Moshe wrote was also in the Aron, according to the Bimeir. And all that fits because he uses the larger one. We're going to see in a, we're going to see in a minute that we're going to calculate everything according to the Biyuda. According to the Biyuda, it just fits with hardly any room left over. According to Biyuda, there was no leftover room, and the Sefer Torah that Moshe wrote was not in the uh, in the um, in the Aron, according to him. Okay, uh, now ten mehem chasit tevel lechol kotel nishtir shedet tevachim lesefer Torah. Good. Rochboshe laron tisha tevachim. Now the other way, right? The uh, the the width was uh, nine tevachim. Dichtiv amavachesi orko one and a half amot. So what is that? Ameta ashita. One ama is six tevachim. Upalgut ameta tilata. And half of an ama is another three. Six plus three, that's nine. It's a little repetitious. And they had four, the four luchot were in there. The two whole ones, the two, two broken ones. And they were six wide, um, six wide, six deep. And three, you know, three lengthwise. Um, and so ten rochban shel luchot, rochban shel aron. So if we put them in uh, sideways, like in that picture, nishtayasham shelosha tefachim chasi. So then you have uh, three tefachim left over, right? How so? Um, here, the whole thing is nine from the outer outer edge to the outer edge, and the uh, the um, the luchot are six. So you have three left over. So that leaves one and a half on each side. Now, how big are the walls? Um, we'll leave half a tefach for the width of the wall and another half a tefach and two left uh, and two left over, one on each side, and that is just a place so that you can grab hold of the Sefer Torah. So that, um, you know, if the Sefer Torah is over here, and so you can't fill up the tall space entirely because you need some place to grab onto it so that you could take it out when they would need to reference and read that Sefer Torah. Good. All that is the opinion of the Bimeir that says that the we're using six tefach to an amma. Rabbi Shimon ben Nakish Amar, the uh, colleague of Rabbi Yochanan, says differently. He says, no, the Aron was made uh, from with uh, with having five tefachim to an Amah. Aman Tana Bama Bat Chamisha Tevachim Rebiuda. He follows Rebiuda the Tana. The Tan Taman Rebiuda Amar Amat Bidan Shisha Shel Kelim Chamisha. Who says that the vessels are five, and this is a vessel. Hahen Aron Kelihu. So according to him, according to Buda, the entire Aron is, uh, since it says it's two and a half Amot, two and a half Amot, right? That comes out to, um, uh, that comes out to 12 and a half Tefachim. How so? So one Amma is five. Second Amma is another five. That's ten. And the half is two, is two and a half. So that's five plus five plus two and a half is 12 and a half. That's the entire length. 
And you still have to fit the same four luchot in it, the luchot are the same size as according to the Bimeir. The ones that you broke, you still have to put in the Aron. They were six by six uh, deep the, uh, when you, they put them in uh, up, standing upright. It doesn't say here, by the way, that they were three thick. Uh, but this is an assumption that the six by six by three. Um, so ten or shell, 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 adon. So if we put them in sideways, like in the picture, what do you have left over? Only half of a tefach, right? How so? Remember, the whole thing is 12 and a half. And now each, uh, that's from the outer wall to the outer wall. And each one is three wide, three, 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 and three. It's 12. That only leaves, leaves a half of a tefach. One tefach is four fingers. And so half of a tefach is two fingers, which means that the walls would be only one finger wide each. Okay, if anyone ever built a house or spoken to an architect, you know that walls take up a lot of space, right? So here, these walls had to be really thin to uh, account for that. And uh, and no room left over. That's it. You can't fit anything else. No, no, no Sefer Torah. In here, they would have to hold the Sefer Torah in a different spot. Now the uh, width this way would be seven and uh, and a half. Because wide is one ama and a half. Each ama is five tefachim. That's five. And half a one is two and a half. Add those together. Five plus two and a half is seven and a half. We repeat the exercise, and there was both all four. They had to be four, th- four luchot in them, the broken ones and the whole ones. He doesn't make the luchot smaller, right? There's still six. So you have six inside a space of seven and a half, including the walls. So once you put them in, you have only one and a half left over. How big thick are the walls? One at spa, spa lechot mikan, spa lechot mikan. One and one, chazit teva mikan, chazit teva mikan leshilut. And then you have just a half left over, half of a tefach left over, so that you can grab onto it if when you want to take out the luchot, you need a tiny bit of space. So there's just a little bit of space in order to uh, grab onto them on on the side. Okay, Kesad Asa Besalel Taaron. We're going to get back to that in a second regarding Sefer Torah. But how did Aaron, how did Besalel actually make the Aaron? Because they have to be wood made out of wood, but gold plated. Two opinions. He made uh, he made three boxes. Two of them out of gold and one of them out of wood. He made it like Russian dolls. He put the uh, first the uh, golden one inside uh, uh, the wood inside a golden one and another golden one inside the wood one. So the wood was in between two golden ones, and uh, so therefore all the walls in the bottom are all covered with gold. And then the, the rim, which you can still see the wood, he overlay with gold. That's what Vesipaho means. Pasuk says actually twice, right? Vesipaho and Tisapenu. So why twice? Because you have the both layers and that lip of the on top that you cover with gold. That's one opinion. He says, no, made one box, 
one box, and then he just uh, he just uh, covered that box all over with gold. Because it says you should overlay it from outside and inside. So it's just well, he only made one box, not three boxes. According to that, it's just enough to say why the repetition of tisapenu. You already said Vesipita. So he says that between each board, so actually you, you take um, uh, how many boards are there? Let's say one, two, three, four, five on the bottom. So each board would be covered with gold. And then you can he would construct the, the box with those uh, five pre, um, pre, uh, 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 pre-overlaid with gold uh, wooden boards. Okay. Now, very interesting question. How did they write the Ten Commandments on the two Luchot? How do you split it up? This is a standard opinion that we have in all of our Batekinus Yot. You have five on one side, five on one tablet, and five on the other tablet. As it says, he wrote them, meaning all the Ten Commandments, on two Luchot Avanim. So that makes sense. It would be five and five. Um, if you actually count the words, you see that the, the first five are a lot longer than the second five, just lotin sach, lotin af. If you split the words uh, more or less evenly, you could put three on one luach and then the other seven on the second luach and you could get an even split. But that's not mentioned as any of the opinions here. Instead, we have a few other opinions, but uh, completely different. Second opinion is that all 10 were written on one tablet and all 10 were written on the other tablet. Why would you repeat them? Uh, why would you put them all twice? Well, this might make sense. And actually, a lot of scholars say that this is, in fact, uh, makes sense historically that when you're like you're writing a contract today, you have a carbon copy, right? I keep one and you keep one. And uh, so too, this is a berit between Hashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu Israel. So it has to be two copies, even if they're kept in the same place, uh, because it's it's God's home. It's also the holiest place for us. Uh, nevertheless, right, there are two copies of all of the Ten Commandments. So that's the uh, second possibility. Says, it was 20 were written on one and 20. Not that there were extra commandments, but they're either they were written twice on each tablet. How so? Probably on the front and on the back. Why would you write them on front and back? Maybe if you'd have display it. So, and there's people all around. So people on the front could read it and people in the back could read it. Um, you know, the Midrash that says that they were, they were like stencils and they were, you know, you could see through, even though they were right, it would be left, right to left on both, uh, even though you saw it backwards. But here it's not talking about that miraculous uh, uh, opinion, but rather just that it was double-sided and it was written on both sides so that people could read it on both sides. Good. Now the most surprising opinion says, no, it was written there were 40, there, there were 40 uh, commandments written, meaning the whole set of commandments were written four times on, on this one and four times on the other tablet, eight times altogether. And he gets that from the doubling of Mizeo Mize. This Mizeo Mize, that's what we learned that it was like uh, the, the miraculous opinion of see-through, but the Peshatas just means it was double-sided. But he's taking this the, the previous opinion and doubling that. 
until you get to this Greek word tetroga, you see tetra, which means four. Now, how could you write it four times? What's the, what is it? That doesn't make any sense. It could be following, there's another opinion that says the shape of the lochot were cubes, not six by six by three, but rather six by six by six. It's found in the Bavli, not here, but the, this, his this opinion to be Simai might be assuming that. If so, the point is that it's a cube and you write all 10 commandments on every side of the cube. That way, if it's somewhere uh, out in public, then everyone, no matter which way they're facing, would be able to read them all and therefore publicize the 10 commandments. So that is extremely interesting. Hananya ben and that teaches that between every dibur that God and Moshe spoke, um, the details and the letters were given. In other words, dibur one would be said, right? And everybody would hear that. But then they took an interlude and said, okay, here's what it means. Here's how you do it. This is what's allowed. These are all the details. As it says, filled with Tarshish. Tarshish here is a reference to a Tarshish Sea, maybe the Mediterranean. The point is, each one, each one dibur wasn't just those words, but was full like a sea uh, with all the details together with it. Um, it's actually uh, probably making a reference to a very old tradition, going back to Geonim and Philo, at the Ten Commandments, are also the 10 categories. And you can fit all the other commandments of the Torah, all 613 fit into the categories of the, of the 10. So that's uh, the, really the 10, 10, 10 major principles, 10 categories, and all the others, all the, all the details are filled in. The Bishamon ben Nakish kad hava matehaden kariyata hava amar yafel midani chalenia ben Nakish ben Achir bi Yoshua ma hayam aze ben Gal Gadol Gal Gadol Galim Ketanim kach ben Kol Dibur Dibur Diktav Otiyoteha Shel Torah. So the um, Bishamon ben Nakish Ashakish when he got to this pasuk he would say I learned a fantastic thing from the, this previous statement Chananya. Uh, is because if he's comparing it to a way to waves of an of a sea, actually it makes a lot of sense. When you have waves, you have a big wave, and then between you have smaller waves, and then another big one, and then another smaller one. So too, each of the dibur was like a big wave, and that's followed by smaller waves, which are all the details and letters of each commandment. It kashayat komer bi pinchas. Bin Chama said, I had a question and I asked this in front of Rabbi Pinchas. He says, It makes sense to me that this whole, uh, this, what the previous discussion follows, what follows Rabbi Meir, or the next discussion, follows the next pasuk that I'm going to follow, say, follows Rabbi Yuda and not Rabbi Meir. Uh, how so? Uh, the the Biuda who says that the uh, Torah there was no room for the Torah in the ark because it was small, and not Rabbi Meir who says the Adon is a little bigger and it could fit the Torah. So he thinks it makes sense that there was no Torah. How do we? How does he see that? My time, Adon Rabbi Yehuda dichtib la'kovach etzefet Torah zev v'samtam watom isad Adon berit Adonai. So you see in pasuk in Devarim it says you should take this book of the law, Sefer HaTorah. That's what Torah Moshe wrote, and put it beside the Adon, next to it, not in the Adon. So there you go. That makes sense. This fits what Rebuda says. There's a little box. Giluskia, Greek word that means a little box next to the Aron. And that's where the Sefer Torah was. Good. So that makes sense. There's no room for it anyway. 
Now, what's the uh, source for the Bimir that says it was in the Aron? Because it says, when, after you build the Aron, you should put a cover on the Aron on top, right? That's the Kirubim would be connected to that cover. And then in the Aron, you should put the Edut the testimony that I will give you. What do you mean that I will give you? Miss talking about the Sefer Torah that was not completed yet, that he will, Hashem will give Moshe. And that you should put in. Now you see the order is first cover it, and then you're going to put the, the Torah in. Because the putting the Torah is talking about something that's going to happen in the future. And in the future, when the Torah is completed, then you will uncover it and put it in. So that's the, that's the source for the Bimeida says, the Yadut is referring to, the Sefer Torah that will be written in the future that you will put in there. According to Yehuda, he can explain this pasuk because he follows the principle that there's no chronological order in the Torah. So therefore, according to him, the Ayadut is referring to the Ten Commandments, the, uh, the two Luchot themselves. And so it means that you, you make the Yaron, you put in it the Luchot, and then you cover it. And I know even though it's out of order in the Pasuk, it doesn't matter. It's, a, it's allowed to be out of order. And last, uh, last midrash, Rabbi Pinchas b'shem Rabbi Shimon ben Nakish Torah shenatan lakadosh baruchud Moshe titenalo esh levana haruta beesh shechora. So very deep uh, statement. The Torah that was uh, that Hashem gave to Moshe was uh, given, and with the white fire that was engraved on black fire. He esh mubulelet beesh. It's in fact fire mixed with fire that was carved um, out of fire. Uh, and was given with fire. Was given, God is in fact compared to fire. And this fits with the Pasuk that from God's right hand, Esh was fire that that law to them, given to them. So that's the pasuk that we learned it from, that this was made out of fire. Uh, I think this seems the point. The point is that um, Hashem did not give Moshe a physical uh, a physical object, but rather the spiritual, why fire? Fire is something that you can see and, and get warmth from, but also is also very scary. And so it's the more uh, spiritual aspect of the law giving. And then that Moshe, um, transformed into uh, actual uh, physical, the physical object of the Luchot and then the Sefer Torah. So probably a lot more, there is a lot more to say about this uh, Midrash, but uh, suffice it to say that this uh, shows a lot of depth of understanding of uh, what, uh, what, the, what, the, what Matan Torah was all about. Baruch Adonai Amen Amen.